I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I am so delighted to be joined today by Rebecca Mackay. Her last novel, The Great Believers, was a finalist for both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. Her other books are the novels The Borrower and The Hundred Year House and the collection Music for Wartime. A 2022 Guggenheim Fellow, Rebecca is on the MFA faculties of the University of Nevada, Reno at Lake Tahoe and Northwestern University and is Artistic Director of Story Studio Chicago. Her latest book is called, I Have Some Questions for You. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you so much. I, this is a little awkward actually, because the book I'm trying to write is maybe the nonfiction version of this really wonderful novel that you wrote, the theme of which I'd like to call the You're Wrong About Industrial Complex, (laughs) where it's not just like Me Too was a moment when women looked back on their lives and realized that some of the things we took as normal and just what happened was not okay at all. Yeah. I'm just about the same age as you are. And I feel like that about all of the 90s. Like everything we were taught was there was a problem with most of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's true. And I think, you know, I'm in my 40s. I think it's a logical age to look back with distance at your adolescence. You know, for for not everyone, but a lot of us, we have kids now. And so you're thinking about their, you know, their childhood, you're thinking about your own. And there's just enough distance where you're like, well, things are things are different. To be clear, it's not like everyone has everything figured out right now. <laughs> no, 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 no. 
when you say something, you know, because like if you talk to like a 20 year old, they're like, yes, it was so like the, the dark ages. But now we know <laughs> like they feel like, you know, like we did, like we thought we did. They feel like this is it. This is the point of arrival. And no one, you know, now it's this point of great moral virtue. And you're like, oh, God, you're going to be so embarrassed in 20 years. Because <laughs> we're all taught to think that we're post, post, post. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right. And it's, and it's really like, it's one thing to look back and be like, yeah, we were wrong 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's another thing for people, especially young people who just have not been through this cycle or this evolution to be like, yeah, and we're probably not there now either. <laughs> so it was fun. Yeah. It was fun to, it was fun to explore that in fiction. And, and of course, I love that one of the ways you explore this is Allah, you must remember this Karina Longworth. Or you're wrong yeah. about a heroine named Bodhi who hosts her own podcast about actresses that you might have been wrong about. Yeah, yeah. No, it's funny. Those are two podcasts that I absolutely love, both of those. And, you know, certainly she's, you know, she's her own thing. I, you know, this is my character has this podcast called Starlet Fever, and it's very specifically about the ways women were abused in early Hollywood. And it's something that it's like, I, it's kind of like the podcast that I want to listen to. I'm not sure it exactly exists. It's like, that. that's certainly the topic that some podcasts occasionally get into, but it's the thing I want to read like seven books about. So, you know, I'm, I'm not going to necessarily write that book myself, although God, that would be really fun to write a book about early Hollywood. But it was, you know, you, you pick out a career for a character. I think that matters hugely. Like, I don't love it when books are just give someone like a really vague job, some kind of office, something. And I also like, I don't think there are enough books where people love their jobs. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, it's always the, like the thing that's crushing your soul versus real life. Um, <laughs> And especially books where women love their jobs and it's specifically movies that do this, but the like, you know, anytime a woman has a significant career, it's always in opposition to a love life, a family life. You know, it's always something that she has to learn to take less seriously. And I hate that. So I, I, you know, have a lot of fun writing about someone who really is really into what she does. I, I, this is a good segue into a part of the book that I really enjoyed and that I've heard about this kind of phenomenon from so many different moms who are authors. Mm-hmm. That if you if you're out about in the world promoting your book or your if, in Bodhi's case, it's her podcast. She often gets the question of who's watching her children while she's out there promoting this. Yeah, it's constant. It's amazing. I started to notice it specifically when that not started. It became very stark for me before my last book, The Great Believers, came out. There were four of us who went together for one week on a pre-publication tour where we were like in a different city every night meeting with booksellers. And there were two men and two women. And all of us were parents. One of these guys actually had five kids. <laughs> and every single night, just in these kind of cocktail party mixing, you know, with like journalists, booksellers, people like that, the the two women, we would get constantly asked, oh my God, so who's watching your kids while you're doing this? And no one's ever asking the men this. It's, I guess, you know, I'm not usually on tour with guys. You know, it's more like I'm <laughs> on tour by myself. So that it was specifically that contrast that was like, oh my God, are you kidding me? Of course, we know that women, you know, are constantly getting asked, how do you balance being a mom 
being a writer. And it got, it's even, it, this is, it was driving me nuts. It drives me nuts always, but there's a, a news story I'm following right now in England, this woman who went missing very suddenly. And it, she has some like pretty serious job. Every single, every single article is like, blah, 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 mom goes missing. This mom, this mom of two, you don't do that with men. It's, it's, God, it's, it's infuriating. Like you might have a high power career. You might be on a book tour. You might be whatever this woman in England did. It, was, it sounded like really, you know, serious thing, but that's, that's not the important part. The important part is you're a mom and where are your kids? And I even noticed, Rebecca, that it feels very deliberate that Bodhi spends very little time talking about her two children. Yeah, Yeah, she, you know, she, I mean, the book takes place, there are two different kind of windows of time when the book takes place. And in both of them, she's in New Hampshire, whereas she lives in LA and that's where her her ex-husband is. That's where her kids are. So we're with her in times when she is away from home. And she certainly, you know, she talks to her kids on FaceTime. She thinks about them, but my experience, and you know, like I'm, I'm, I love being a mom, but my experience is that when I'm out there, when I'm working, when I'm traveling, I am not sitting there being like, oh, my children, where are my children? Like I I am my own person and I'm doing what I'm doing. And then, you know, I, we, we call once in a while and I just wanted to basically replicate that. It's not that I was trying to make some statement that's not true to me or to other women who I know. I was just trying to be realistic about that. Like, yeah, she's, you know, she's busy with other stuff. (laughs) She's got a lot going on. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so let's talk a little bit about what she has going on. Yeah. So she's invited back to this boarding school where she attended as a scholarship student. I like in your author's note at the end, you're very careful to say you did go to a boarding school. <laughs> yeah, but not anything like the one I'm writing about. Yeah, I was a day student at a boarding school. And Bodie is asked to come back for this two-week intercession kind of specialty course. And so she's going to teach a bunch of high schoolers about film and podcasting, which that sounds fun. But another thing about Bodhi's time at Ramby is that the student who she shared a room with junior year was murdered in 1995. Mm -hmm. If we're talking about podcasts, Serial really did change the game in terms of involving regular people in a matter that might not concern them. And and showing people that it that it can count. Yeah. It was also the first podcast most of us listened to, I think. For me, think it was right. like, wait, everyone's talking about this. How do I get podcasts? <laughs> and like finding that app on my phone and going, oh, okay. Yeah, it was it was definitely kind of the OG in terms of podcasting medium for true crime coverage. Although like, you know, you look at and, you know, you look, oh, my God, the way that murder trials were covered in the 1920s, the like lurid details, the way people would go and like souvenir collect at crime scenes. And then we look at like, you know, Dateline in the 80s, 90s. Aughts, like this is nothing new, but it was definitely, you know, the original kind of, you know, the podcast that got that going. And I think it's the reason that so many podcasts are true crime podcasts is people just realized that there was something about the storytelling that could go on in a podcast that really suited the medium. 
you know, there, there are great things about cereal. There are things that I think it did not do very well. Um, and there took credit for things that it shouldn't have taken credit for in the end. But, you know, yeah, I listened to that one. I've listened to a lot of other ones. But but beyond that, I mean, I'm just someone who will do a major deep dive online into a case that captures my attention. Um, I do once in a while, like on Twitter, I'll post ones where like, especially I, I, I don't ever want to do something with like living people, even in my limited Twitter reach. So I'm, I'm always getting into like unsolved murders from the 1920s or thirties, which is a time period I love anyway. But, you know, I was, I was interested in, you know, exploring, you know, a big theme of the book is who's, you know, who gets to own the story. And certainly, you know, the, there are imbalances of race and class and gender and power in terms of who gets to own the story. But there's also this question of, you know, what happens when a story captures the public imagination? What happens when a story gets out on the internet and you have people with YouTube channels devoted to a case when they had no connection to it? There's good stuff that can come of that, right? Like the freeing of the West Memphis Three. There's, there's, you know, people can recognize, like, you know, submit familial DNA and solve cases, or they recognize photos that have been posted of Jane Doe's. So there, there is absolutely good that can come of that, and and pushing for innocence project work. But there's this really skeezy side to it too that yes. has been there all along, obviously. Yes. But there's, you know, it's it's just there, and so I I wanted to include that. Yeah, I think that anytime we're talking about a true case of violent crime, we're in a way that's captivating, we're kind of consuming the worst moment of a life or a few lives as yeah. as entertainment. And and that is not great. Yeah. Yet. <laughs> right. Well, I think there's something evolutionary. There's something instinctual where like, you know, I, I'm sure for like most of human history, it's like, oh, that guy died. How did he die? I need to learn. So oh, yeah. like, oh, he ate those berries or he like fell off that cliff. Right. I got to check that out so that I don't do that. You know, and, and it's, you know, usually not that helpful. I mean, you know, sometimes you learn things about like the kind of person not to date. <laughs> there are times yeah. you're like, okay, I'm going to just make a note of that. But there's we often don't even know why we're drawn in. We just are. I, I do think it's instinctual. I do think it's evolutionary. But even when it's like, well, this is clearly not going to happen to you. This is something. But I think that's a reason that we're we're so often drawn to cases where there's some connection, mm -hmm. right? Someone maybe lived in the same city as us, or we knew someone who knew them, or they have, you know, they they have a job like our job or whatever it is where we don't even know why we're drawn to certain cases. But then if you actually look at anyone's personal kind of file folder of like the cases they've been obsessed with, you could probably figure out a lot about who that person is by the things they they get drawn in by, the things they're disturbed by, the things they can't look away from. It, it's probably because there's they feel like some connection to their their own life. And, you know, Bodhi is a, a perfect example of, of such a person. And I even like that the kinds of pushback she gets is is very much a part of this process of figuring out, okay, is she going to make this podcast or oversee this podcast that her students are going to make yeah. about the murder of, of her former roommate? And is it their right? Is it her right? Who has the right to tell such a story? And does she just have a white savior complex? Right. right. 
Yeah, that's a big part of it. And it's it's like, well, and order her, you know, just her one student is very, you know, very concerned about that. Like, am I, do I have the right to even investigate this? And what if it's a white savior complex? But then it's like, well, but someone needs to, you like, also don't just not do it because you feel like, oh, I can't possibly. So, you know, good actually does come about to a certain extent from these people's involvement in this case, but it's messy. It's really, really Very messy. messy. And and of course you have the family members who were happy to have a resolution and don't necessarily want to open that part of their life again. Right. Yeah. But also yeah. there's a man in prison. Yeah. There, there are a couple of different reasons that it's almost impossible to not only to overturn a conviction, but even to get to the point of a retrial. One of them is that prosecutors do not want to lose the convictions that they've like chalked up to wins judges don't you know sure. a jurisdiction doesn't want to like then have an unsolved case police don't want to back down and the other part of it is that the families want that to be done they've you know whether they're correct or incorrect have found peace by feeling like okay the chapter is closed this guy is in prison and to either suggest that you know, to suggest that this person could get out on what they might see as a technicality could be terrifying, or to suggest that all the peace they've found is false would be terrifying in a different way. And so you you very seldom get a family going, yeah, that guy should really like let's let's you know, <laughs> let's take a look at a trial. Let's check that evidence out again. It's it makes sense, you know. Yeah, yeah. Tell me a little bit about in this book. I remember Ruman Alon blurbed this book and I talked to him about kind of learning how to write the beats of mm -hmm. a quote-unquote unputdownable <laughs> thriller. Yeah you know yeah it's it's I would love for any book that I write to have those beats right. Sure. Um, and I'll say like I, like I'm I'm really easily bored I have pretty intense ADHD and just, you know, the books that are like beautifully written, but not much happens. They're not for me. I, there, there are people who will eat those up. I'm just, I'm just not one of them. I'm also not a reader of things that are just kind of surface level thriller, like boom, boom, boom. Oh my God, the car exploded. It's, that's not my jam either. So, you know, like I love ton of French, right? On the, on mm -hmm. the kind of mm -hmm. way plottier end of what I read. It's really smart. It's really, there's deep psychology going on in those books. You know, I taught elementary school for 12 years. I taught Montessori elementary school. And I read aloud to those kids for half an hour every day, just like the Westing game or like Lois Lowry or oh. whatever. And it was this amazing education that I, I didn't even realize at the time I was getting this amazing education in the beats of a story. And when people tune out, when they get bored, because kids will give you instant visual feedback when they are bored <laughs> and they'll start getting into trouble and they're like rolling around. And, you know, I would find myself sometimes skipping. Well, not, not with the two. I just mentioned like Ellen Raskin and Lois Lowry, they, they were masters and never had to skip around in this, but you know, certain, certain authors where you're like, I'm going to skip these like seven pages where the forest is described in detail, mm -hmm. like, or I'm going to summarize a little bit. I'll read three sentences and then we'll go on. It's not that kids have poor attention spans necessarily. And these, these kids were, were great, but 
those authors are writing in a vacuum without an audience of children literally sitting in front of them, rolling their eyes and getting out the craft scissors and starting to snip hems of their pants or whatever, you know? So <laughs> it's like, I got, the, I got this feedback though, man. I could give you some notes <laughs> based on the audience reception. That just, you know, that sunk in, in a way that I feel like I, I have a really, I'm, I'm grateful for the ability to, I, I think, you know, it's not like it's, it's easy, but, but I, sometimes works for me that I can feel when we need something new, when it's time for a revelation, when it's time for a turn, when it's been too long since something has happened. I just feel that really physically, viscerally, because I had, you know, this 12 years of training. <laughs> and 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 it did allow you, I, I really loved that there were a bunch of short chapters in which Bodhi can theorize about Mm-hmm. different suspects and, and what they might have done and what the murder might have looked like. And of course, we're very used to seeing that in detective novels where mm-hmm. partners are going back and forth. Well, if he did this and, and it's, it's, it's so much neater to see it in one person's brain. Mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I wanted to just kind of, take us there into various scenarios rather than having her yeah rather than trying to have that come out in dialogue or anything like that I originally this did not work at all but I originally had all those sections together in the middle of the novel so it's like you got through and then it was like here's like seven different scenarios and then we got the second novel it was not didn't work in my I I think it was my, yeah, my, I think that was early on. My editor was like, maybe, you know, think about doing something different with these. It it made so much more sense to spread them out, partly because it's the order that she's really thinking through these things. Yeah. Yeah. Different possibilities are occurring to her, but yeah, they, they, it also, you know, it's a way, you know, this is a book where this is not a terrible spoiler. By the end of the book, you do pretty much know who did this and what happened. And, but, you know, I'm not going to have this moment where this person, it, it's 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 an intentionally unsatisfying ending in some ways too, right? Mm-hmm. This person's mm-hmm. not going to be like, yes, and here's how I did it. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but having had those chapters along the way with various scenarios playing out, my hope is that then when you do figure out what happened, you're able to go back to those other scenarios and be like, okay, like I, I have a good sense of what probably went down. And and of course, we're not just doing this with the murder. We're watching Bodhi do this with her time in high school overall, kind mm-hmm. of figuring yeah. out these mysteries. And, and I find it so poignant that mm-hmm. we all seem to be unreliable narrators especially when we're trying to piece together our adolescence or our teenage years yeah yeah it was really important to me that this was a book where we're trapped in the present she thinks back on things that happened in high school but we never go back there we never like right. the narrative never zooms us back there and also she's very honest with herself and you know with the the audience of the book about the things she doesn't remember and the confusion she has. There's, you know, there's the the suspension of disbelief that we often need going into a novel is that when someone has a memory, it's going to be like a full 
chronological yeah. three-page memory where it's like all the details like I tasted the salad and then I put my <laughs> hand down 50 years earlier right which is not how memory works it's how memory works in film and I think what's happening in recent literary fiction is that people are borrowing from a filmic portrayal of memory rather than either a, a realistic human portrayal of memory or b sort of a you know, like so what someone like Virginia Woolf worked so hard to get across with just like examining human consciousness. Like we're not tapping into literary tradition. We're not tapping into actual human psychology. We're just writing down a movie and someone's in their me- in this memory and then they need to be like shaken out of it by someone calling the name. And then it's like, oh. <laughs> no, you need that in film <laughs> to get out of the, you know, like to transition out of the sepia toned memory and back into the present scene. You don't need that in fiction. So you know, I I really wanted to to trap us and to trap Bodhi in the present where these memories are really subjective and they're really unreliable. It, it's it's I've I've had several people ask me call her an unreliable narrator, and I really disagree. I think she's a tremendously reliable narrator because she's being honest about this stuff. Versus narrators who are like, yes, I remember that day. Tuesday, it, <laughs> it was thirty three degrees. <laughs> And and you can see that over the years, she's had some time to reflect back. And there are things she knows now that she certainly didn't know then. Yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, you do such a good job of encapsulating this this relationship she had with this harasser, this this other kid at school who just jokes quote unquote with her all the time and that's stuff that she's already kind of like I I I picture this scene of Bodhi like thinking like reading about a case like reading about a me too situation and being like oh (laughs) yeah 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 well I think that's what so many of us were going through with me too was this reckoning it's like we already knew what the like the big traumas like you know people like like having been assaulted and what it's like yeah of course but what was not of course but like that that was already something that for most for most people you 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 know you're aware this big huge thing happened but with me too the excavation of these tiny moments was fascinating and the things that I had not thought about in years and years and years and you know that had maybe upset me at the time but the the narrative at the time is like you're it's funny why aren't you laughing if you don't find this funny you're a prude or you're too uptight and realizing okay no that was actually a huge like I had every right to be upset that was ridiculous and other people were upset by things like that too it's just that everyone was keeping quiet because no one wants to be the person going like oh put your dick back in your pants (laughs) you know that made me feel weird. And and yeah. you you get to get into that a little bit more with Jerome, who is Bodhi's separated husband, who yeah. it, his case kind of reminded me of the Aziz Ansari kind mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. like trying to figure out like what's the difference between bad behavior mm-hmm. and needing punishment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Right. And it's fun. I think the Aziz Ansari situation, that was where for a lot of us, it kind of things kind of jumped the shark. We're like, okay, this is worth talking about for sure. It's not worth like, you know, I wasn't there. I don't know. But, you know, the the thing that's a seemed like a, just a very different scenario than say Matt Lauer or Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby, right? This is, you know, I, I wanted something messy, right? I don't want to go in there being like, yes, and now we're going to meet you all these guys and it's all for the best because they're not always very clear cut cases. And she, you know, she's looking at this case and and it's not like the book comes down one way or another, but the, the character's point of view is he had a relationship that was a consensual adult relationship that didn't work out and he didn't always treat her very well, but he didn't hit her. He didn't, you know, and now his career is going to be over because this woman has made an art piece about him, a performance art piece. And she, but she then, she messes things up further. So, you know, she gets into hot water, but this is some of the stuff, you know, in the art world, in the literature world, in, in film world, some of the things coming out are like, okay, people there's, you know, there was a huge age gap and these people dated consensually is that now suddenly a problem, you know? And someone can say, yeah, I was so young and naive, but okay, but if you were like, you know, 25, 28, or you were a consenting adult, are we going to say now that women in their 20s are not consenting adults? It just gets so messy. Um, and, and yeah, uh, and, and on the other hand, there is a power indifference. And yes. yeah, and 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 the, the performance artist clearly has like a, a valid complaint against Jerome and I wish more people would grapple with that kind of gray area rather than this is the thing right it's not right it's this is not me saying we've gone too far this is this is me like trying to get us into the grayest of gray areas and just the book doesn't need to decide the book doesn't need to be the jury on this but what's, you know, what kind of things happen. And and for Bodhi, she feels very, you know, protective of her husband and very indignant that this woman would accuse him of these things. But at the same time, she, you know, has these this rage towards this young man who harassed her in school. And you think, well, but his wife would probably feel like, well, yeah, but he was a kid. <laughs> and it's, it's all a big mess. The, the thing is, you know, like Twitter or the internet, those are not places for the gray area. It's, you know, <laughs> no. it's going to come out on Twitter and be like, well, I don't know. It's complicated. And you, you, people try, but it's, it's what gets amplified are the extreme positions. But what, what art, what literature can do is, you know, it has the space and the time to go into those gray areas and be like, Hey, this is messy and paradoxical and there's no easy answer, but I'm going to tell a story about it. I love that. And and you do so, such a good job of the Greek chorus of Twitter responses. Yeah. Oh, God. It's it's funny because, you know, like I obviously wrote this before the Elon Musk Twitter takeover. And that's like, I, you know, is this going to be some weird artifact of, you know, the, the brief life of Twitter if everything implodes? But no, those Twitter voices, I mean, they're 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 easy to conjure, you know, because you see them, we, you see that all the time, the way people talk. And yeah, it was, it was very fun. It was very fun to write tweets in a novel. I feel like I could have done that all day. I probably would have, <laughs> I could have taken over the novel with tweets in a, in a counterproductive way. Well, then I appreciate your restraint. The book, I have some questions for you. It's amazing. Before we go, Rebecca, would you like to recommend some books for us, please? 
Yeah. So I'm doing this thing right now. I'm reading my way around the world in translation. My father died in 2020, early 2020, and we weren't able to have a memorial for him, but he was among other things, a literary translator. And so I decided I'm just going to read my way around the world. He lived to be 84. So I'm doing around the world in 84 books. And I'm like, tweeting about it and writing about it on my Substack and everything. So I have people reading with me, but the best one I've read so far in, I'm only like seven, I'm on book seven. I'm not very far, but <laughs> best book I read so far in that was The Door by Magda Szabo, Hungarian novel, Z-A-B-O. It is so good. It's about this woman's relationship with her housekeeper, house cleaner. And, but it's like this tense psychological drama that ends in like this horrible tragedy it's it's really, really good. And then I just, the last one I finished was called The Murderess. It's a Greek novella by Alexandros Papadiamantis. I think I'm saying that right. It reads, it's from like the early 1900s. It reads like a folk tale, but it's, it's incredibly disturbing. It's this like town kind of witchy woman who just decides to mercy kill a lot of young, like, female babies and children in the town and then goes on the run it's very weird it's kind of like baba like evil baba yaga sort of wow. i mean baba, I guess baba yaga's already supposed to be evil but like a really evil baba yaga um so those those are two highlights so far from from my journey now i'm reading a turkish novel it's good so far but i'm only like 10 pages in i love this thank you so much thank you thank you for listening to the maris review check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today and please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts 